reading for today is from Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain, or figs, or vines, or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, so because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is the word of the Lord. So if you were in the Sunday school hour, you may have heard a mention of a series that I did years ago called Christ in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to discuss a passage in the Old Testament that's very similar to that series of messages. That is, what does Numbers 20 have to do with Jesus? And on an initial reading of this passage, you may not see him referenced, or alluded to, or mentioned, but it's my opinion that this is one of the most clear passages in the book of Numbers concerning Jesus Christ. Both our need for him, who he is, and what he does for us. Those three things. Our need for him, who he is, and what he does. And so we're going to look at this passage. Uh, before we look at it, we're going to look at a reference from the New Testament that is what Jesus Christ says concerning the scriptures and why it is, how it is that we can take this approach or this style of interpretation as a valid means of interpreting. We're going to look first at the purpose of Scripture, that is Jesus, what he says about Scripture. We're going to look at the folly, the utter foolishness. Uh, sometimes we think it's wrong to call people fools. Well, the book of Proverbs calls people fools, and if there's any right estimation of this passage, the Israelites were foolish to strive against God's goodness, and instead they grumble against Moses and Aaron. We're going to look at Moses and his special role as the mediator between God and the people of Israel. 
We're going to look at God's provision that is his kind heart that had already established and already set up a means by which they would obtain this water that they so desperately needed. We're going to look at Moses' sin in not representing God well. We're going to look at the holiness of God, and that is uh, that is being both revealed by this passage as well as what Jesus Christ did for us in coming to the earth, displaying the heart of the Father, healing, delivering, binding up broken hearts, setting people into families, restoring life. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus and his appeal to the people of Israel at the great feast in Jerusalem where he offers himself as living water. This passage shows us that we have needs. We have deep and lasting needs. And it's my intention to convince you or to persuade you that the only truly life-lasting, long-lasting source of, of water, of spiritual nourishment is Jesus Christ. That's what he appeals to us through this passage. So we're going to look at those elements and then we will uh, take communion together and we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. So Jesus Christ in the gospel of John, in John chapter 5, 39 says, you search the scriptures. He's speaking to a group of Pharisees who are trying to trick him. If you've ever read the gospels, you know that this is the Pharisees' main goal. They want to trip up Jesus Christ and show that Jesus Christ is a breaker of the law. Therefore, a sinner and unable to be who he claims to be, that is the one that the Father has sent. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. This is kind of a summary or restatement of really all that we spoke about in the first part of today's uh, service in the Sunday school hour, what my dad did a wonderful job uh, describing and explaining. The whole scripture is pointing to Jesus Christ. If you cannot find Jesus Christ on the page, you have not yet found the meaning or the purpose or intention of that portion of Scripture. He's in every page, every line, and the stories, the narratives, the historical events which are faithfully recorded are attempting to show us how God at that moment, through his people in Israel, was attempting to point forward to or explain to them their need by parable, by story, by narrative, their need for Jesus Christ one who would be the sufficient answer to whatever problem or whatever dilemma is showing up in this story. And so Jesus Christ is the central purpose of all scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And in demonstrating him, we find the true both authorial intent, that is what the prophet or the apostle, whoever was writing that passage meant, but also what God is meaning in directing those writers so God is intending to explain to us, according to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains that these things happened for us as a reminder or to teach us that we should not reject him who's speaking. And we've, we've been talking about this for a number of weeks. Hopefully that is kind of resonating with you. If you've been here the last few weeks, you're remembering what the, the various portions that we have looked at recently, Exodus 19, Exodus 26, etc., and so Jesus Christ is the point of Numbers 20, and it's now our job to show how that is, to dig deeply until we strike gold and find the nugget of wisdom, the nugget of truth here that's speaking about Jesus. So that's our goal. Therefore, every account must be seen how it points forward to, foreshadows, alludes to, or demonstrates. Sometimes there's someone in the story who does a really great job. 
And that really great job is still not enough. It's not total. It's not complete. Other times they're in the story, they do a terrible job and they completely fail. And this is one of those types of stories. It's my opinion that those are better stories to preach Christ from because I really resonate with those. Uh, if you've ever, you know, failed at something, you can take a lot of solace in this passage, both at the same time knowing that there is a remedy, but also that God doesn't lower his standard to meet your imperfection, which is actually a supreme grace, as we're going to see in a little bit. So we have to find Jesus Christ in Numbers 20, and it's our job to do so. So we're going to look at the context of Numbers 20. If you don't remember the story, I'm going to summarize it really quickly. God spoke to a man named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I am choosing you to make out of you a people that will bless all of the earth, that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That word all is a pretty big word. It's a small word that means a very big thing. All the families of the earth will be blessed. So this thing ain't over until all the families of the earth have been blessed. And I don't know about you, if you turn on the news lately, there are a whole lot of families who aren't even close to being anything like blessed. The wars, the strife, the depression in culture, the lack of maturity, the dysfunctionality, there are a whole lot of things to be remedied before the promise to Abraham is fully brought about. But through Christ, we believe it has been begun and is continuing. So God tells Abraham that in the midst of this covenant promise, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. The very next phrase he says is, know for certain that your descendants will go down into a land and will be oppressed for 430 years. What a great blessing. We, you know, that we, there's these phrases in Christianity, you know, I claim every verse. I don't, I don't know about you, that's not a great verse to claim. God intends to teach the Israelites that he is able to deliver. And so he brings them up out of, Exodus, uh, out of Egypt through the Exodus. They're suffering under slavery, they're oppressed, they're tormented, they're forced into hard labor, and God delivers them, and he delivers them by preparing this guy named Moses. And in delivering them, he gives them a promise to go to a better place. We know this as the promised land. He describes it as uh, the Israelites will go into this land and they will inherit vineyards that they didn't plant. They will inherit threshing floors, which they didn't find or didn't establish. They'll inherit fields, which they didn't sow. He describes this land as probably my favorite description of what I think is really good cereal, flowing with milk and honey. My favorite, honestly, my favorite cereal in the world is Honey Nut Cheerios. If you give me a box of Honey Nut Cheerios and a half gallon of milk, I can eat for a week. Because, well, I mean like three days, it goes quick. But it's, it's savory, it's nutritious, and it's, well, it's kind of nutritious. It's delightful. It's got calories. This land is described as sweet, as flowing with milk. Notice in this passage, I think it's interesting, there's three times in verse 4, 8, and 11, there are mentions of the people and the cattle. The people and the cattle, where we and our livestock can drink. I, I, while I was preparing last night, I, you know, sometimes the Lord really strikes you on a particular verse, but I was just reminded in the book of Jonah chapter four, how God describes his reason for compassion on this wicked, idolatrous, terrible city called Nineveh. He says there's 120,000 people and much cattle. God's much more interested in reconciling the creation than you realize. 
He's not a God who just loves his image bearers and hates the rest of creation. He's concerned. And so here, God is intending to provide for them a land where their cattle are not only there, but also blessed. And so here, they have this wonderful promise. Well, what happens? We know that they send some spies into the land, right? Have you maybe heard this story? They send spies into the land and Caleb and Joshua come back and they have a good report and the rest of them have a bad report. The other 10, the other 10 spies come and say, the land is, you know, the land is huge and its mountains are high and we appear like grasshoppers in front of these giants and even the fruit is too big for us to harvest. It's a really intense story. Uh, if you've ever seen fruit that's bigger than you, you've probably not been in touch with reality. These guys are so, they're so tormented by fear that they make these small Canaanites, which we see running later from the Israelites, into these giants. And so the Israelites were told by God, this is a land that's good for you. It's flowing with milk and honey. There will be vineyards, wine presses, threshing floors. You're going to inherit all of this and you don't even have to work for it. And then they choose to believe these 10 people saying that, the land we're like melting like wax in front of these inhabitants that the people of the land are too strong for us they're too mighty in number we can't do it after having seen god by his miraculous power destroying the economic and political military giant of the world in that day if you understand the context of the book of egypt or the book of exodus egypt was the military powerhouse they were the they were the economic empire they were the mighty people in the earth at the time. And the reason they got that way, if you remember, was when Joshua interpreted, uh, or sorry, Joseph interpreted the dream concerning Pharaoh, they, they were given wisdom from God so that they would store up grain. And then it says, as the, the famine came in, uh, Joseph was buying up all the land of the Egyptians and they were consolidating power. They were establishing a kingdom. And God raises up Egypt just so that he can knock her down and display himself as sovereign, powerful, able to do wonders. God destroys Egypt, mocking with every single one of the plagues. We don't have time to go into it, but every single one of the plagues mocks one of the idolatrous gods of Egypt that they had trusted in, the frogs, the flies, etc. Even the very thing that they considered to be their life source, the Nile, God made it to them a stench. In trying to demonstrate that he alone is God, there is no God like him. And yet, even after seeing all of this, Israel doesn't want to go into the land. They do not want to obey God, even though God says it's really good. It's like trying to give a car to someone and them having no, they don't want to do it at all. And instead they choose to like take a unicycle on the freeway. That, I mean, that's how ridiculous the trade is to go around in the wilderness for another generation versus taking the promised land. And so they, they don't go into the promised land. God subjects them to learn obedience through traveling in the wilderness and they go through the wilderness for a full generation. Now, at this point, God is still loving to them. He's still choosing to respond in mercy to these deeply rebellious people. That alone, if we stop the sermon there, that would be great. God's going to continue to try to bring me into the promised land. Hallelujah. But it gets better than that. God is working with these wicked people, these stubborn and rebellious Israelites, over and over again to show them once again, to finally convince them by repetition that he is able to save, he's able to deliver, and he's ready to provide for them. He does this a few times before this point in Numbers 20, bringing uh, bread from heaven. 
You may have heard of manna. That's what he does. He sends bread from heaven. He also sends quail. And he says to the Israelites that the quail will be there for a full month. I don't know about you, but hunting for an entire month, you'd have a lot of quail. You'd be able to make quail jerky. You'd be able to make quail steaks, quail barbecue. It would be amazing. You'd have quail coming out your ears. God has intended to overly, uh, ab- overabundantly supply every need that the Israelites have. And yet, when the quail show up, it says that God judged them because they were overjealous. They were overzealous and greedy. It says that they stayed up all the way through the Sabbath, gathering for the quail, even though God had said, it'll be here for a full month. You don't have to worry about it. So, nevertheless, anyway, God had desired to bring them into the promised land, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So, what I think is interesting is the irony of the things that they ask for in the light of the revelation of where they had been invited to go. In Numbers 22 and 3, now there was no water for the congregation. If you live in a land flowing with milk and honey, that means even your cattle have enough to drink to produce milk, right? Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. The writer here is very clear. They're not assembling themselves together to seek help from Moses and Aaron. They're coming to assemble themselves against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers had perished before the Lord. This is why I'm titling this portion of the message, the folly of striving against God. The folly of striving against God is seen in verse 3. These people are saying it would have been better for us to die when God was judging the people for idolatry than to be here. That's suicidal. That's, That's sociopathic. That is literally insane. They're they're saying, we wish we were dead instead of still living here and still on our way to the promised land. This is amazing to me. And so they, they don't assemble themselves to petition Moses and Aaron. They assemble themselves to grumble against them and to, to accuse Moses and Aaron of bringing them out into this dry place when they themselves are receiving the consequence of their refusal to buy into the promise of God. It's amazing. Verse 4, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? There's that pattern, we and our cattle. Verse 5, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? See, they're grumbling against Moses, but all these things that they're saying that Moses has done wrong, if you don't remember, God did that. These people are saying, Moses, instead of sparing us when God was judging some of us for all of us committing idolatry, we should have died. So they're rebelling against God's mercy. And then they say, you have brought us out of Egypt. We should have stayed there. Wait a second. God brought them out of Egypt. And then finally, here to die in the wilderness, when over and over again, God is trying to teach them, he will provide for their needs. It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. That's one of the exact descriptions of the promised land. If you look at the original passages. It's a place with fruit. It's a place with abundance. It's a place with infinite storehouses for them just to pick right off of vineyards, orchards that are already ready to produce. And it's significant to me that God said that these vineyards would be established, these orchards would be established, these wheat fields would be ready to harvest from. Because if you if you start to learn about agriculture, it actually takes about 10 to 15 years to get fruit from cer- certain types of trees. And vines don't really produce grapes that are worthy of using for a few years as well. 
And so God is basically handing everything to them on a silver platter. They reject it and then complain that they don't have the very thing that he wanted to give them. This is amazing to me. God had desired to take them into this land, far surpassing what they've even asked for here, and yet they wanted nothing to do with it. So, admittedly, I can sympathize with these people. If you're in a wilderness, you might get thirsty, right? It's admittedly acceptable to be thirsty in a wilderness. And notice God doesn't rebuke the people for being thirsty. Now, assuredly, they shouldn't have assembled themselves to grumble. They should have come in petition. But the object of their petition or the object of their desire wasn't wrong. It was the means by which they went about trying to get that thing. So rather than petitioning Yahweh, they come and complain. And after all of the provision and blessing, they haven't learned to trust God for their good. They still are understanding God to be against them, or they've made up this idea that God is wanting to judge them harshly, yet over and over again, he gives them mercy and, and deliverance. And so the people are about to see the great forbearance, the great mercy of God yet again, and God is uh, willing to do so. And this is where the trouble comes in, is Moses is a man. He is not God. And what he does in the next few moments, uh, as we're going to see, in the next few verses, as we're going to see, uh, is extremely important for us to to see if we're to understand the holiness of God. For the last month or so, we've been talking about the holiness of God as it relates to these visions of the throne room, Exodus 19, Exodus 26, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4 and 5, Isaiah 6, etc. We've been talking about those, and here we see yet another example in the Old Testament of the holiness of God by which we see our need for someone who can do something that no man can do. No mere man can do. So, Moses is a mediator between the people of Israel and Yahweh. It just means go go between. If you've never heard that phrase, it just means Moses is approached by the people and then he goes to God. Or God wants to say something to the people and God first get, uh, gathers Moses to himself and then sends, sends him out. Uh, we see this happen when Moses is beginning to be prepared. God wants to deliver Israel, and so God sets up events so that Moses would have a whole lifetime, so to speak, 40 years, uh, the length of a, of a generation. He would have time to be prepared by God in order that he would be a fitting vessel to act through. And Moses is the mediator, not just of the people to God, but also God to the people, as well as God to Pharaoh and Egypt. In bringing the plagues, God acts through Moses and Aaron. Every single time in the book of Exodus, whenever God is about to do a plague, he tells Moses what to do, Moses and Aaron do it, and then the plague is brought forth. God never operates against Egypt without going through Moses. Likewise, when God is ready to bring the law and give the law to the people, he gives the law to Moses. Moses then gives it to the people. When God brings Israel through the Red Sea, he doesn't split it himself, but rather he tells Moses, don't stay here any longer, go forth, and then Moses puts his hands up and the seas part when Moses acts. So we see this pattern. Moses is the one through whom God is acting, and the people of Israel are beginning to learn about God through observing Moses. And so it's very important that Moses begins to understand this holy and glorious and wonderful calling that he's been given to represent Yahweh to the people of Israel. 
It's Moses' responsibility. And so in this passage, Moses and Aaron go up before Yahweh with the request of the people. Now, I think this is interesting. In the passage that we read today, it doesn't actually say that Moses and Aaron even mentioned what was on their mind. Rather, they just appear before Yahweh. Look at this in verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. They didn't even have to bring up what they needed. God's wanting to see, are Moses and Aaron going to come and recognize that I'm the source? And they do. So Yahweh speaks to them in verse 7 and 8. But God has chosen this people and wants to bless them. We've seen over and over again their sin, and God is wishing to bless them. And so God does not even speak a word of correction or rebuke to the Israelites. Isn't that amazing to, to, me, to you? It, it's certainly amazing to me in my Christian walk when I am being just a, you know, a silly, just acting a fool, and, you know, God has mercy on me, and sometimes he judges you, and sometimes you repent and you know you need to be judged. You know you deserve judgment or, or, uh, or um, you know, punishment, so to speak, um, but you don't receive it. God here doesn't even speak a word of correction or rebuke to the Israelites. Now, I don't think Yahweh is intending to bless the people for the way they went about it, but he's certainly willing to go over and against their, their sin. He's willing to look past it and see their need and meet that need. And so he, he knows their need even before they ask it, and he is already prepared for a sign and a wonder to be performed by Moses. And Moses is going to perform this sign and this wonder, and then after that, the people should see, they should learn, yet again, that he is the source of their blessing and goodness. Verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation before you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Now, hold on. You're going to talk to a rock in a desert, and the, the rock is going to bring forth water? Utter folly. <laughs> Moses is hearing this. I don't know what's going through Moses' mind. The text doesn't even say. But he's, he's dealt with the Israelites assembling themselves against his face. He has dealt with the brunt of their frustration and foolishness and wrong choices. And he appears before God, and God doesn't say one thing about going and, and telling the Israelites off. He just says, speak to a rock in the middle of a desert, and it'll bring forth water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. There's that repetition, we and our cattle. And so Yahweh is given this amazing call to Moses, not only to represent him, but to do these signs and wonders and to present to them a a face of grace when all they are giving is rebellion and strife and frustration. Notice Yahweh says, so you shall bring water out of this rock. Look at what Moses says in just a, a minute. God doesn't indicate any frustration. Surely the people are not to be praised for grumbling, but it doesn't indicate that, that God even wants to address that at this moment. Maybe he'll do it in the future. Moses doesn't heed God's instructions. The clear instructions were Moses, assemble the people, take the staff with you when you do this, speak to the rock, and bring forth water. God had not told Moses to speak to the people at all. He says, speak to the rock. And as soon as Moses assembles the people, what does he do? He lashes out at them. He speaks against the people. Moses delivers a word of judgment and condemnation that is not commanded, though deserved. 
And this is where we see the sin of Moses. Moses presumes to interpret and to judge on his own where God had been silent. Moses says in verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said, hear now you rebels. In the future, when I have kids, (laughs) I want them to know the word of God. And so I've thought about this a few times and I, I think it would only be appropriate in a joke, but, uh, but teaching your children the word of the Lord is very important. And these passages are great to do that. Here now, you rebels. I mean, think, enter in for a moment in your imagination to what Moses is doing here. He's, he's just had the whole nation come and grumble and complain that they aren't in a land that's awesome and they're in this wilderness, and Moses the whole time is, is sitting there knowing because he had just been in front of Yahweh a few, you know, maybe a few years before when Yahweh to his face said, because you won't go into the land, now you're going to be in the wilderness. And the whole time Moses is, is in, interceding for these people, and they just keep coming and giving him nothing but death spewing forth out of their mouths, nothing but complaining. And Moses decides, I've had enough. <laughs> I'm done. So he goes to Yahweh and he's probably expecting Yahweh to say, go to the people of Israel, yell at them for not uh, believing in me and bring them water anyway. Well, when Yahweh doesn't decide to do that, Moses, he, he lets his, you know, pressure gauge boil over, so to speak. He, he explodes. Here now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out from the rock for, for, for you out of this rock. Now, what I think is interesting is he asks them a question concerning the explicit command that Yahweh gave to him. Let's, let's look at this really closely. Verse eight, so you shall bring water out of the rock. The people had nothing to do with the plan of bringing water out of the rock. And Moses says to the people, shall we bring the water out of the rock for you? See, the the people are directly disobeying God's promise and not believing in God and therefore not entering the land. And Moses, in his frustration and overreaction to their sin, enters into the exact same sin that they themselves had committed, which was to not believe God's promise, but rather question it. Remember, the Israelites say, why have you brought us out? It It would have been better if we would have died. You've brought us out into this wilderness, out of Egypt, and now here we are with no water to drink. The people doubt God's promise, and Moses, in responding to the sin of the people wrongly, instead of responding to the sin of the people rightly, enters into the very same sin which they themselves have committed, which is doubting the promise of God. He says in a question form, shall we bring water out of the rock? Verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand, and struck the rock with his staff twice. Notice it says twice. It's not like Moses uh, acted and then decided, oh wait, that was, I overstepped my bounds, and then quickly repents. Moses strikes the rock twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. There's that pattern again. Don't you love the Bible? Verse 4, verse 8, verse 11, we and our cattle, our livestock, God, God intends to bless these people, and he, he intends to bring them into a good place. He doesn't want them to all die in the wilderness. He's working with them, pleading with them, trust me, 
and even their representative, who up until this point has never done anything wrong, at least according to the scripture's record, and yet even Moses gets it wrong. This man who, as we've seen in weeks before, has lived with God on a mountain that was full of fire and smoke. He ate and drank along with all the elders and God himself on the top of this mountain, having dwelt in God's presence. He's the one who, when he goes before Yahweh in the tent of meeting, comes out of it and his face is a glow stick. This miraculous event that is happening to him over and over again, and he's being trained to present Yahweh to these people. He's being trained to host the presence and the goodness and glory of God, and yet he fails. He speaks a word of correction and judgment when the people are not told uh, by that, that by God, and he does not represent God as holy. He disobeys Yahweh and strikes the rock. He speaks harshly to the people of Israel, though Yahweh had not instructed anything to be said to them at all. And so Moses oversteps his bounds. He begins to think as a mediator that he can act on his own, which is not true. Yahweh judges Moses' disobedience as coming from disbelief or unbelief, if you want want to say it that way. He doesn't presume that Moses heard wrong, but rather that Moses heard rightly, but did not believe. It's important to see this distinction. Moses is not accused by God as getting the facts wrong. It's not like God gave him a command and he interpreted the instructions the wrong way, but rather he heard God's promise that there would be water coming out of this rock, a miraculous sign and wonder. And yet he didn't believe God so as to treat him holy. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Wow. Nail in the coffin. Moses had been given an assignment by God. When he's bringing up Egypt, or bringing up Israel out of Egypt, God is saying to Moses, bring them up out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the beginning of where we start to see the descriptions of the promised land. This was Moses' calling for his life. Verse 13, the waters are, are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. How did Yahweh show himself holy? He shows himself holy by giving them a blessing where all they bring is cursing. He shows himself as holy by responding to them in grace, even though they don't have any capacity to petition him with thanksgiving. And he shows himself as holy by judging appropriately Moses' sin, where Moses was commanded to only bring forth water and not to strike the rock. Moses, through his striking of the rock and through his harsh speech against the Israelites, demonstrates God as angry about their legitimate need. Now, again, we're not dismissing the fact that they're grumbling, but at least they're talking to Moses and Aaron about it this time. They're not digging wells on their own. They're not running off into the other nations. They're staying in the wilderness. And yet they come to Moses and Aaron, albeit in the wrong spirit, but they still come to Moses and Aaron. And so Yahweh intends to convey, once again, he's going to show them mercy when all they really deserve is judgment. And the one time Moses fails to represent Yahweh in the right manner, he loses the calling on his life. That's how Yahweh shows himself to be holy. The holiness of Yahweh is one that never fails. It never turns. 
God is said to have no shadow of turning in him. That is, there is no imperfection in God. And Moses, as called to be a representative of God to the people, has to represent God well. He fails to do this. He demonstrates and communicates anger instead of answering the people's request, and so sins. Time and again, Israel had complained, and God wished to demonstrate his abundant supply, and yet Moses didn't do it. In his infinite mercy, he was going to display his kind intention to meet their need, and yet Moses dealt harshly. It's not okay for Moses to have overstepped his bounds, and yet he does, and God says to Moses, because of this, you can't bring them into the land. Now, some may say this is a little bit overboard, that God, this is, I mean, he's just a human. Why, why is God angry with Moses? Well, God is holy, and that holiness is not a holiness which seeks to just kind of, you know, whack-a-mole style of judgment. But rather, it was no minor thing that Moses presumed to speak on God's behalf when God had remained silent. It, was, it would have been fine if Moses would have brought forth the rock and then afterwards gathered the people and said, you should not be rebellious. You should, you know, come and, and seek from the Lord. Don't, don't grumble against us. That would have been appropriate for Moses to do. But instead, Moses decided to take matters into his own hand and strike the rock, which we're going to see is a wonderful thing for us that he did that. God, desiring to redeem this situation, is attempting to speak to us about our need for Christ. That is a twofold need, one for a perfect representative and also for a, walk, a rock who will be for us a source of living water. The one time that Moses fails to represent God's response to his people prevented him from fulfilling his destiny. This is amazing to me. We would do well to learn from this example. Now, I believe that the grace of God is on us in such a way that we do not have to live in a holiness that is subject to this sort of standard. God is intending to display a particular need for righteousness through this account with Moses. Nevertheless, in the, in the New Testament, we are commanded to be holy for he is holy. God is desiring to bring us to the place where we learn, like Moses, to represent him well. And also, we learn to not be like the Israelites and to come to God for our source, rather than only grumbling and complaining against God. It shows us of the impossibility of sinful men to represent God well. And this speaks to us of a need for a perfect representative. And I believe that the New Testament is clear. The perfect representative is one person, Jesus Christ. We need one who will come and represent God well, showing us infinite love and patience. It's not possible for us to go through life with God and never grumble or complain. We need, just like these Israelites, we need constant mercy and, and forgiveness and grace. And this is what has come to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done for us something that is wonderful. That is, in all of his life and ministry, Jesus never failed to demonstrate, or Jesus never uh, failed so as to demonstrate God as something less than holy. In, in the Gospels, Jesus says that he demonstrates God rightly. In John uh, chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 5, as we're going to see in a minute. But Jesus Christ represents God in his life and his ministry coming to a people who were ignorant of God, who were full of sickness and demonic oppression, healing their sicknesses, and delivering them from spirits which oppress them. And Jesus is constantly displaying the heart of the Father. 
he says that he only does that which he sees his father doing. Jesus Christ, not only in his life and ministry, but also in his passion and death, is representing God's forgiveness over and over again, even while men are spitting on him and tearing out his beard and hitting him with sticks. A lot of times we forget the small details, but it says that they took reeds, which you can think of kind of like if you've ever seen hard bamboo. They took sticks and beat him in addition to whips and that were full of metal and glass so as to rip the flesh off of his back. And even on the cross, Jesus Christ is displaying the fatherly love of God. God, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. These people are ignorant of what they're doing to the Son of God. And the Son of God, the very one who's being spat upon, who's being hit with sticks, who's having his beard ripped out, who's being scourged with whips, this very one who's being nailed through his arms and his hands, that's the one who says on the cross, Father, forgive them. That's amazing. Jesus Christ shows the perfect forgiveness of God over and over again, even though ignorant people assemble themselves against him and seek to kill him and end up killing him. Not only does Moses' sin point us to the need for a perfect representative, which we have in Jesus Christ, the, uh, the event, this account, the thirst of the people reminds us of our own need for spiritual sustenance, that is life-giving water, that would be for us uh, a source of life that is unending. Jesus is not only that perfect representative who atones for sins, but also he himself offers himself to us. Jesus Christ is not only atoned, but he's going to be for you a source of life-giving water. In, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Picture this scene. There's thousands of people around. They're celebrating a feast. It's a feast that is commanded in the Bible. I, f- I forget which one, but it's not important, really. Uh, it is important. It's not important right now. Jesus stands up in the middle of the crowd, and up until this point, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the Herodians, those who were of the party of of this false king of Israel, they're trying to find him and trying to get him and trying to, you know, harass him or get him to, you know, make a mistake so as to demonstrate that he's a sinner. And he stands up in the middle of this giant crowd of people, and he says this thing that can only be understood by the, the mind that's aided by the Holy Spirit. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a free offer, a free invitation to anyone who would, who would respond. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, clearly, Jesus is not saying that he's going to fetch water for you all day, every day. It would be impossible. And so what is Jesus speaking of? He goes on to say, verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is speaking about something that's not physical, it's not natural, it's not a water which is going to go away. Verse 39, now he said this, this is John's interpretation of what Jesus has just said. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had been not given. Why? Because Jesus had not been yet glorified. What does Jesus pray in John 17 when he's about to go to the cross? Father, now the hour is at hand for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
the rock was struck for you, Jesus Christ being that rock, to be the source for you of living water, which would not go out, but rather it would remain. It wouldn't even be external to you so as you could need to search for it, but rather it would come from your own heart because he will deposit his spirit in your life in such a way as to be persistent and constant and ever ready to meet that need. And it's only possible because Jesus Christ was struck, as John says in his gospel, because the spirit had not yet been given, because Christ had not yet been glorified. And we may think that glorification of Jesus Christ only means after he ascends, but in John 17, Jesus says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and he's speaking the hours before the crucifixion. That is why you and I can have this source of living water. Moses striking the rock was sin, and yet we still understand that the rock, which is Jesus Christ, has been struck for us. He was bruised so that we would be healed. He was chastised so that we could be forgiven. And this same person who has not only perfectly represented God, never sinning in any way, never demonstrating frustration or anger or judgment when, when God wishes to convey mercy, never failing in such a way as to demonstrate love perfectly, even though he was hungry and tired and homeless and with a group of people who would eventually disband and, and betray him. Jesus, in his life and ministry and death, has never failed in representing God well. And yet, after all of this, he also promises to give you his spirit for those who would come to him. So the answer is, are you going to be like the Israelites and grumble against God? Or are you going to be like those faithful people who Jesus is calling to himself? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's really our option today. That's our option every day. And it's up to us to find the grace of God in order to believe his promise. The promise is laid out before us, and it, it is on us now, aided by the Holy Spirit, to respond to that, to not be rebelling against God's good call, but to, to enter in by faith. That's, our pro that's, that's the call that we have to respond to today and, and every day. Let us not be like the Israelites and refuse to enter into that rest that is only found in Christ, which is open to us graciously through faith in him. It's not according to something that you do. It's not according to something that you've earned, but rather it's a free and open call. We must not be like the Israelites and come with grumbling, but rather we should come to Jesus Christ with full assurance, knowing that he wants to be for us that very living water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask you that you would move by your spirit even now. God, I pray that you would go beyond my ability to represent what's happened in these verses that you would overlook in, in any way if I've misspoken about you, Lord, but that you would that you would move on us. Lord, we admit freely that we are often like these Israelites, weak and sinful people who are grumbling against you and, and constantly being a source of what would be frustration, a source of envy, of strife, jealousy. Lord, I pray that you would move on us by your spirit, that we would hear the very promise of Jesus Christ, that he would be for us living water, and that we by faith would respond and truly drink of him. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.